Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Welcome to Space 3D. This is one of your co-hosts, Eleanor O'Rangers. This is part two of our interview with manned orbiting laboratory expert and space physiologist, John Charles. Along with my esteemed co-hosts, Emily Carney and Tom Hill, we continue our interview with John on a number of MOL topics, including tying up the discussion on MOL artwork from part one, the declassification of MOL materials, and the legacy of MOL including some time devoted to paying respects to Robert Lawrence, a so-called hidden figure from the MOL Air Force Pilot Corps. We'll even tease you with the possibility of John writing a book about MOL artwork, coming to a coffee table near you, we hope. And now, the conclusion of our interview with John Charles on the Manned Orbiting Laboratory. I have another question. I was reading through your website, and I noticed you worked with a lot of people who I really, you know, I really admire their work as well. You know, you worked with uh, Megan, I think, Pralinger. I don't know if yeah, I'm yeah. saying her name right. And Dwayne Day, who right. I, I, I love that guy. <laughs> I think he's pretty funny, but I like, I really admire a lot of his work. Um, you know, and how, what was the back and forth between you and, you know, people like that who, you know, have some expertise, you know, also talking about, you know, classified programs and Well, Dwayne Day is the go-to guy for reconnaissance satellite stuff. He's he's out there. He's on Facebook. He publishes on uh, in the Space Review, which is the weekly electronic uh, uh, magazine put out by Jeff Faust every Monday. Uh, he's published in, in Spaceflight and other, other, other uh, publications. And uh, <clears throat> for whatever reason, I... Uh, I don't know, 15 or so years ago, I sort of e-introduced myself to him and said, uh, cool stuff uh, you're doing here, and have you thought about this or that aspect of it? And with Dwight, you sort of have to convince him that you're legitimate. Otherwise, you know, he's, you know he doesn't suffer fools lightly, and you just have to convince him you're, you're not a fool. Yes. Uh, so I, I guess I said enough of the right things and showed the right kind of interest that he sort of took me into his, uh, to his uh, confidence and he shipped me a lot of documents that he had harvested from the Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama, or, uh, yeah, Alabama uh, their archives there on the MOL. So that was my introduction to a lot of the documentation. And most of those were just weekly activity reports. And so you could really read through there and see what the, the managers were doing on a weekly basis trying to get MOL going. But he's, he is also my go-to guy for reconnaissance satellites. He really likes the... The unpiloted ones the best because they were they actually flew and they actually did things, and he was my introduction into the uh, the world of of satellite trackers and and reconnaissance satellite analysts, and he also pointed me toward uh, Megan Prellinger who wrote the book Another Science Fiction because I showed Dwayne on, on one of his uh, visits to Houston, I took him into my office and said here I I brought this stuff to work to show to you. Look at all this art from the MOL program, and he sort of looked at it and says, "Yeah, that's that's interesting." It wasn't really his his cup of tea, but he said, "Talk to to talk to Megan Prellinger. She has just published a book called Another Science Fiction, and Another Science Fiction is uh, the commercial space art of the '60s, 
that uh, was used to advertise what uh, all the contractors were working on. So if you, if you know anything about, if you ever read the trade journals of the 60s and the 70s, and even today you see art from the companies illustrating their products, he says, maybe she knows who did this art. And so I wrote her a letter, or I wrote her an email, and I, I sent a couple of examples, including the signatures on some of the paintings that I could not read, but I knew they were signatures. And I said, I was really hoping to see examples of this man's work in your book, and I didn't, but maybe you know who he is anyhow. Does this art look familiar to you, and can you recognize the, the signature? And she said, no and no, but I know a guy that might be able to help. And she gave me Mike Machat's contact information. And Mike Machat is the guy that has done uh, lots and lots of highly detailed and very beautiful aircraft paintings and some of the murals you see at some of the flight test centers uh, around the country, especially at, at Edwards and at, uh, at the, the Dryden Flight Research Center, which is now the Armstrong Flight Research Center. And he looked at those, and he recognized the signature. He says, yes, that's, that's Neil Jacoby. I used to work with him. Here, let me tell you all about it. And so that was like uh, that was like the sun breaking through clouds. I could suddenly get some insight into how the art was commissioned, how it was uh, managed. He's a guy that told me all about the uh, the art departments of McDonnell Douglas. The volume of work that I've I've got the 35 paintings was probably the product of of maybe a, a month or so of work by Jacoby. That was it was industrial art. You know, you go in the morning and you do a, a painting, and then you go break for lunch and do another painting and then, then come back and, and do another one, you know, after the coffee break, probably in three weeks or a month or, or two months, you know, he produced this portfolio of 35 paintings showing life inside the, the MOL. And, and from the declassified pictures, the photographs from McDonnell Douglas, uh, you can, I can trace, I can find similarities between scenes he painted and scenes that were photographed inside of the, uh, uh, the mock-up, or or other people's artwork, you know, pe- artwork that was published simultaneously in Aviation Week and Space Technology, or in the other journal, Missiles and Rockets, or in some of the other sources from the 60s, it has echoes in some of Jacoby's paintings, and all I can imagine is that uh, as Jacoby was working his way through this uh, list of topics he was going to, he was assigned to paint on, his art director would periodically show up and throw a picture, you know, photograph on his uh, art table and say, "Here, this is what the launch pad's going to look like. Copy this and put it in your painting." Or here, here's what the the food's going to look like, or the sleeping bag's going to look like, or something like that. Because you can see one-to-one correspondence between what he painted and photographs. And since we know the dates of the photographs and we know the colors of the spacesuits that were that he was using in his images, I can figure out you know, roughly, you know, uh, within a year or so, when he was doing this work, and it all sort of fits together nicely. I have a question for you. How much had your interest grown in MOL before the big classification, the de- big declassification, and, and then after? Had you already... <laughs> oh, yes, already I was, uh, because uh, Dwayne Day had shared a lot of the files with me. So I spent a lot of time looking at the pictures, you know, from my perspective as a life sciences uh, specialist, trying to figure out exactly how they would do this or that, how they would fit into this or that thing. And uh, as I said, it was something that has fascinated me since the, the 60s when I first heard about it in the open press, right before it got uh, classified top, top secret. So I was always, always, always interested in it. It was, you know, it, we of my generation who are space nerds from way back, have a special place in our heart for the Gemini program. And this was uh, Gemini writ large. This was the, you know, the, the next 
use of the Gemini space vehicle, and it just seemed like such an obvious uh, a good idea that I was really unhappy when they canceled it, and Gemini sort of faded from view. So it was always part of uh, my interest, and it was always something that I was, I was intellectually curious about, and then Dwayne Day sort of uh, uh, enabled my curiosity, and then when this uh, declassification happened, it, it cemented it. Did the uh, declassification add things to the unclassified stuff you'd already done? Well, it it did in the sense that it provided a lot of details. The the declassification was done, I don't know if it's typical National Reconnaissance Office style or what, but the declassification event essentially gave uh, 825 documents and uh, a couple of dozen photographs and one film clip with essentially no provenance, that is, no background information. The pictures are not labeled. And so there's a, you could spend a lot of time talking with other MOL geeks like myself and hold a picture up and ask somebody to tell you what it is. You probably get five or six different interpretations. And there's no right answer because there's no... You know, there's nothing on the back, and there's no key code or anything like that. Unless you can go find evidence elsewhere in the literature or, or unless you can infer something, you know, it might be just my word against somebody else's. But a lot of the stuff does look familiar because I'm interested in space technology and I'm interested in medical technology so I can see the similarities and the relationships. I'm also, uh, I also spent a lot of time looking for other reasons in the early history of underwater training of astronauts. It is uh, the, the EVA and the weightless training of astronauts underwater, and I can recognize some of these things were, were, were tests that were done underwater in MOL mock-ups to try and get some sort of sense of the ergonomics or whether the people can fit into those spaces. So there was, there was again, uh, if, you are, if you are a curious person like I am, then this was, uh, this was fresh fodder for, for totally uninhibited forensic analysis uh, that uh, really nobody has uh, been able to do before because a lot of this stuff just wasn't available. How much have you focused on the Gemini edge of things? I've always found that interesting, especially the idea of putting a hatch in a, through a heat shield, the fact that that worked and it just sort of faded yeah, the, away. The uh, Gemini thing was probably one of the early hooks uh, for my interest because that's where most of the data was. You know, Gemini was just a really cool program in its own right. They did so much so fast uh, with such uh, skill in the Gemini program. And then the idea of taking an established spaceship and modifying it, which is why they call it the Gemini B. Uh, you know, the Gemini A was a NASA version, but NASA never called it Gemini A because it was just Gemini to them. But then you modify it. You, you take a lot of the life support systems out. You put in extra retro rockets, and then you put in this hatch through the, the heat shield. Uh, that's, you know, it was, it was a great example of, of uh, creative engineering by the spacecraft uh, designers and engineers who found another market, another user for their vehicle, and, and just went ahead and did it. And by the way, the, that heat shield hatch is something that is that is a tr intriguing to so many people that, that even don't even know a lot about spaceflight because they figure, why would you possibly put a hatch in your heat shield? What is the If you're going to commit suicide, that seems like the best way to do it is to put a weak spot in your heat shield that's going to be exposed to the brunt of the heating during your entry back into the atmosphere. And it turns out that, you know, as everybody knows, the, the cutout in the heat shield actually fused solid during the one flight test on a, on a repurposed Gemini capsule. But if you think about it, the space shuttle had five five hatches in its heat shield, and every single time it landed successfully, it's because all five of those hatches worked. You know, the three landing gear and the two uh, fuel uh, intakes, you know, from the external tank were all fed through the, the blood heat shield of the space shuttle. 
the Russian Buran flew successfully with three holes in its heat shield uh, over the landing gear. And the Russians also built another spacecraft, which was, I believe, inspired by the Gemini MOL program, uh, their, their Almaz TKS, the reentry vehicle, which also had a hatch in its heat shield for the same exact reason, for the transit back and forth between the capsule and the orbiting laboratory. And it worked, uh, I think, seven or nine times. So it just goes to show that uh, hatches and holes and heat shields are not necessarily uh, uh, invitations for suicide if you do them right. And it actually opens up a lot of possibilities for your, your structure, and you don't have to have the, uh, you know, put an orbital module ahead of the, the capsule, which makes escape easier. It, it really You know, the Russians, a lot of uh, the, there was a, an offshoot of uh, Korolev's design bureau that actually was given the contract to build a military Soyuz, and they did the, exactly that. They put the, the, the orbital module behind the capsule, and they put a hatch in the heat shield of the reentry vehicle, and it's exactly right, Tom. You've made a very good point. You know, if your escape tower doesn't have to carry across, doesn't have to lift both the habitation module and the the, uh, the crew module when it fires for escape, you can build a smaller escape tower, and you can have more payload on that rocket instead of carrying rocket fuel for the escape tower. But the Russians looked at this alternate design done by this satellite design bureau and said, no, thanks. We're going to stick with the one we have. We're good with that. And it's yeah. been working for quite a while. Finishing up that thought, the Russians have flown how many hundreds, 500 Soyuz vehicles with their escape towers, and every one of those has carried extra fuel to be able to pull that habitat module off of, uh, along with a reentry module, if there was an escape required. Just think of that as a tax they've been paying. They've taxed themselves with some fraction of their usable payload just because they didn't want to, to update their design like one of their design bureaus said. So they, you know, it's, you're right, it, it works, it's not broken, don't fix it. But on the other hand, that's a substantial overhead to pay for doing things the way we've always done them. Yeah, I'm hoping that uh, that, that sort of trade-off it becomes less important yeah, over time right. here. John, I have a question. I think no sort of discussion of MOL is complete without talking a little bit about one of the so-called hidden figures, Robert Lawrence. I'm wondering if you have any comments about him relative to the MLL program and, and his broader Air Force career. Well, yes, I did. In fact, I, I published a little essay on him on the, in the Space Review about a year ago uh, on the anniversary of his selection as one of the last uh, four pilots selected by the Air Force for the MLL program. Robert Lawrence was equivalent to the hidden figures uh, of movie fame in that he was the first African-American the first black man selected by a space program to be one of their astronauts. And there's a whole story about why he wasn't recognized as such after his death, but he was but he was selected in the last group and think of just think of the the irony. Here is a man who was supremely well qualified. He was a, a fighter pilot, he went to test pilot school, he was also a PhD in nuclear chemistry. So combining both nuclear physics and chemistry, he got his Ph.D. in it while he was active duty Air Force and still flying fighter airplanes uh, for, you know, for a living. And, and it was, the man was, was clearly intended for bigger and better things. And he was part of a, because the Air Force space program was secret, he was part of a top secret program where they would travel incognito using fake IDs to, so nobody could figure out what they were doing and, not, and back, you know, back uh, engineer what the MOL program is all about. 
but he was also well known. He was the first black fa- astronaut, the first astronaut with a black face. So he was in all the newspapers. And Don Peterson, who was selected with him, who was a you know a good old boy from Mississippi, and they got along just fine. He said they enjoyed he enjoyed traveling with them. Uh, you know, you know the, these all the other astronauts were you know pale males. They they could fit into any group, especially in the 60s, which was so segregated, especially in the South. So you had the case where you've got possibly one of the most famous black people in America as part of a top-secret military space program. You know, it's again, that's one of those decisions. Somebody said, you know, this guy is so good, we've got to take him. And somebody else probably said, yeah, but we're going to have a tough time making him disappear now as part of a secret program. And somebody else said, yeah, but we got to do it. So, you know, just that would be a fascinating uh, example of the discussions. If I could only find a document that discussed that, and so far I have not found that document, but uh, he was—he uh, had applied earlier to be one of the MOL pilots and was not selected in the second intake. And I think it's because he hadn't finished his test pilot training yet. He was still pretty young. But the, the four guys that were selected in 1967, the four final selectees, I think were sort of fast-tracked. I think they were identified as, as valuable for the program, and they were sent to test pilot school altogether and uh, to the advanced training as a group as well, and then sort of, rotated into the MOL program. Now, Lawrence was part of a secret space program, and the Air Force didn't like to call their their astronauts astronauts because astronauts ended up on the cover of Life and Time and Newsweek and, and uh, you know, did things like going to Monte Carlo and stuff like that, and their pilots were just really consulting engineers that might end up flying on this thing. So they called them aerospace research pilots. They named their the school the, the test pilot school, they call it aerospace research pilot school. And they, the idea was to make these guys as invisible as possible, make them cogs, make them part of the machine, because, again, it's a top-secret program. You don't want the Russians figuring out what you're doing by tracking these guys as they go from, from contractor to contractor and decide and, and figure out what it is that they're, they're learning about. So Lawrence was, when he died, uh, on active duty, in, uh, in the line of duty, and then the program was canceled uh, about uh, a year and a half later. He died in, in December of 67. The program was canceled in June of 69. He sort of fell through the cracks. He was a, an astronaut who died in the line of duty, but his name did not show up on the astronaut memorial mirror in Florida at the Cape Canaveral. And it's largely because the Air Force said, no, he wasn't an astronaut. He was just one of our pilots. And the Memorial Foundation said, look, we can only do what the Air Force tells us that we can do, and if he wasn't an astronaut, we can't put him on the memorial. And so uh, Jim Oberg, James Oberg, who was also a very famous historian and sleuth specializing in the Russian space program, and others uh, essentially made it uh, uh, politically incorrect for Lawrence's name not to be on the memorial, and that's when uh, Lawrence became more well-known, more widely recognized. We actually had a... uh, uh, a ceremony for him uh, a year ago in June, uh, June or July of last year, uh, here in Houston at the Buffalo Soldiers uh, National Museum, which is here in Houston, honoring him as uh, a, as a an African American hero uh, worthy of of public recognition. So that's that's another fascinating story. But you know there were there were 16 other people selected for the MOL program as pilots, and I'll bet they've all got interesting stories too if we can just track them down and understand what they are. 
maybe just one more question, just kind of, I guess, uh, wrapping up. How does, uh, and it's, you know, we, we kind of started talking about this at the beginning of this talk. You know, MOL was a canceled program, and, you know, I think to some people it might seem kind of, you know, reductive to talk about something that got canceled, you know, but how is, um, I think, you know, MOL is still, you know, relevant to this day because of its influences on other programs. Uh, uh, excellent point, and that's one of the things that I, I use to try and make it relevant to today's audiences when I speak about it publicly. Uh, right now we're talking about building a, a, a lunar orbiting platform or gateway in orbit either around the moon or around one of the Lagrange points or in a near rectilinear halo orbit or something like that, but it's not going to be much bigger than the MOL was. So it's going to be a very compact vehicle, and there are things that the MOL planners and designers had to think about, like hygiene, like exercise, like food, uh, things like that that will be relevant to both the, the, the lunar orbiting platform and to probably future commercially available space stations at low Earth orbit, which will not be as voluminous and uh, well-equipped as the International Space Station is. We're probably not going to see something as big as ISS again for a long time. We're probably going to be seeing a, a plethora of smaller Bigelow and Axiom kind of uh, space stations, which are going to be one or two or three modules stuck together. The Chinese space station is going to be about as big as the Mir was, and, and both of those uh, both of those are are diminutive compared to the International Space Station. So I think there are lessons that can be learned from People that would edit with a clean sheet of paper back in the 60s that might be applicable to the space stations of the 2010s, the 2020s. Uh, if you, if people just know to ask the question, if people just know that somebody actually looked at those, those questions and those problems before. Also, like I said, you know, a lot of the, the medical, uh, monitoring equipment of Skylab was developed for the MOL and it influenced the Skylab designs, then influenced the space shuttle and the space station design. So I think it's it's not a bad thing to see where the technology and the techniques that we're using today came from. I think we always get additional insights and additional uh, knowledge of of the uh, of the work that we're doing and the capabilities we have today by by looking back at where they they came from. So uh, I think there's probably lots of lessons that can be learned for future spaceflight from the study of of even a canceled space program like the MOL was and other programs of its uh, of its ilk and its uh, those those compatriot programs of the 60s and the 70s that that never flew but I can't help but believe that uh, smart people at those times answering asking the same questions that we're asking now came up with answers that are relevant to the questions we're asking now has uh, has everything been declassified now the National Reconnaissance Office will tell you that it has. I think they took a really good stab at it. There are still things that are coming out, but they come out in smaller groups, you know, dribs and drabs. But I think the goal really was to declassify as much as they could conveniently. And if you look through the documents and, and talking with Dwayne Day and others, uh, it's clear that, that uh, and in fact they told us at the declassification event, which took place at the uh, the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force in, in Dayton uh, back in 2015, they told us that they said, we have declassified almost everything, and the parts that we haven't declassified are still classified. And if you look through the documents, you can see the parts that are still uh, redacted relate to the uh, the ground resolution 
of this spacecraft. So they have taken out the parts of the documents that tell us that it was intended to find things as small as four inches on the ground. And you've, you had exactly the right response because everybody, everybody in the world that has paid attention knows that that's the resolution, but there is still something in the in that data that they don't want to go on record about saying publicly, you know, for attribution. So there you go. Uh, but as far as that's concerned, I think what the I think they've done a, a sort of a, a typical National Reconnaissance Office, you know, spy kind of thing, and that is by that is that is they've hidden things in plain sight. They've given us 825 documents with no very, very little descriptive material. That's sort of like, here, you want these documents declassified? Okay, they're declassified, rots a rug. Good luck trying to find anything in them because you have to read every single document to see what it is it says and how it relates to anything. So I'm, I'm doing it recreationally. You know, I read, I'm starting with the, the monthly activity reports, and I figure if I find things in the monthly reports, then I'll go look for the memos that, that came in between those reports and see what they say. There's no real guidebook to it. There's nothing, there's no, uh, there is a summary document that was written in the 19, about 1970, uh, sort of a brief history of the MOL. They've republished that, but it's, it's just at best an overview. I've got a question, John. Uh, I've seen a couple mentions that, that they were planning on launching out of both coasts. I know that the test flight was done out of the East Coast because I thought that was the launch pad that was ready. But did they actually have plans to fly out? The original plan was to fly two test flights. I mean, not just the heat shield test, but two actual vehicles unpiloted or even piloted out of Florida. And that would have been an equatorial orbit, you know, plus or minus 30 degrees about around the equator, which would be valueless for, for reconnaissance, but it would have given basic biomedical information and basic spacecraft system information, and then to switch to the West Coast for the polar orbits. That was the original plan in 63, 64, and early 65. When the NRO came on, they said, oh, that's lovely, but we're not interested in those East Coast launches. We're going to go operational as soon as we can, so let's just launch everything out of the West Coast. And that's why Congress got unhappy, because the congressmen and the senators from the great state of Florida said, why are you building a separate spaceport on the West Coast when you've got a perfectly adequate one right here in our state with all of our uh, our federally funded employees that like to vote for me here on the East Coast? And they could see their business drifting away to the West Coast. So that's that was a big part of that, uh, that uh, brouhaha with the Congress. So the plan was originally, yes, to fly them out of the East Coast on test flights and then switch to the West Coast, but but by the time the program was authorized by President Johnson in 1965, it was exclusively a West Coast program. And uh, another question. I haven't seen any artwork that depicts the kind of power source it would use. I haven't seen any solar arrays on it, but they were talking about using not using long-term fuel cells. Well, what it was, was the, not going to be solar arrays and, until they went operational later on, and it was going to be fuel cells. The uh, Alice Chalmers fuel cells that were – it was going to use the Apollo fuel cells. They were just going to use the same – technology already demonstrated for Apollo, and that's why they had a 30-day lifetime. But, you know, that's that's an example of the kind of decision-making that I'm so interested in, and I'm not an engineer. I don't know the technical details as well as I'd like. But why did they choose fuel cells versus solar panels? Well, fuel cells give you more flexibility, more maneuverability. You don't have to keep aiming things at the, solar, at the sun. Uh, also, if you're trying to be incognito, not having huge reflective solar panels is an easier way to stay hidden from sight from the ground. But then they also did things like uh, 
they had reaction control rockets, you know, the, the thrusters on the outside for attitude control, for even for fine attitude control as they were tracking targets on the ground. Why didn't they use control moment gy- uh, gyros, CMGs, like they did on Skylab that could be, that could use, uh, that could provide the very, very fine control without using up rocket fuel? Well, maybe the answer is because they couldn't afford the electricity that would have been required for those gyros, for those big, uh, uh, spinning wheels uh, without solar panels. Maybe the fuel cells didn't provide enough energy, so they had to compromise and say, "Okay, we'll just use rocket thrusters," and and that's how we're going to change the attitude every time we go looking for a new a new target. And of course, rocket thrusters use fuel. Fuel's a finite resource. Fuel cells use oxygen and hydrogen. That's a finite resource. Those are, those things all limited the lifetime of the MOL. The MOL was as qualified, as uh, complicated, and complex a vehicle as the the uh, the Gambit satellites before it, the Hexagon satellite after it, both of which are spy satellites. But it had a, a lifetime just a fraction of what theirs was before because it had so many limitations based on those kind of decisions and because it required it had human life human life support on board. They were going to throw away each MOL after its 30-day mission. They were going to burn them up in the atmosphere instead of letting them stay in orbit and function unmanned. They actually considered flying them unmanned. They they considered flying half of them without pilots on board just to validate the technology. But they were disposable reconnaissance satellites, whereas the Air Force and the National Reconnaissance Office were flying satellites almost as good as them for much, much longer at the same time, so the the program really was really was about putting blue suitors in space to do something useful, just anything. Please suggest something useful for our blue suitors to do in space. Reconnaissance seemed to be it. Another uh, issue with solar panels, and Hubble had this as well. Uh, the the large solar arrays will flutter when you're maneuvering. They switch to the smaller uh, the smaller panels yeah. on a very early right. Hubble repair mission. And can you imagine that, not only the solar panels wobbling while you're trying to take precise four inch resolution photographs, but the astronauts themselves inside. You know, if the astronaut is touching anything in the vehicle, the entire vehicle is going to vibrate at about one hertz because that's that's your heartbeat. Uh, the Skylab guys would say that they could, you know, when they when they held on to a little handhold to look out the window, they could they could feel themselves oscillating with the you know with the frequency of their heart rate because the blood squirting out of the heart is going to oscillate the body up and down each time it beats. And if you're trying to to have precise imaging of the spacecraft on a very very small target on the ground, you don't want anything like heartbeats like belches and farts excuse me for saying that you know what's you know the opening and closing of storage lockers looking for lunch while you're trying to take pictures you know having people on board is probably the worst possible thing you can do for a spy satellite but there you go so what what's your end game what's uh what's the plan <coughs> are you compiling a book with all this information or uh well now that i retired from plan? nasa i've been telling people and i was telling people before i retired that i was going to retire and write a book Probably not a memoir because I don't think my career is that interesting. But I would I would like to do a book on the MOL. And in fact, if you look at that website, but if you look at that, it's laid out like a coffee table book. So I imagine that as the prototype of a coffee table book on the MOL. But I would like to go back in and add more of the story, more of the story of the art, and more of the backstory on the uh, the technology, the medical instrumentation, especially. 
and answer <clears throat> answer some of the questions about the MOL that people keep asking, like hole in the heat shield, like two compartments or one, uh, you know, and uh, will they be rendezvous and docking to reuse the vehicle and, and all those kind of things, things that are, were clearly answered in the lifetime of the MOL program. There's also artwork out there of two different conceptions of the follow-on program, each of which, each of which would have used multiples of these MOL modules docked together, sometimes side by side and sometimes <clears throat> end to end to build up huge military and even scientific installations in orbit. So I'd like to touch on that as well. So the end game is uh, to put this into book form and then, uh, and then see where it goes from there. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about my favorite subject, the Manned Orbiting Laboratory. We hope you enjoyed learning about the Manned Orbiting Laboratory from John Charles. You can download this podcast and others from this season and our inaugural season on iTunes. Join Emily Carney, Tom Hill, and me, Eleanor Rangers, for another Space 3D podcast in a few weeks.